Good evening. I suppose this is a good problem to have where both of us came prepared to preach as opposed to neither of us showing up and prepared to preach. Um, but as Pastor Barnes said, uh, we will be looking tonight at Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the last verse of that chapter, and continuing on and looking at the entirety of chapter 2, which is 10 verses. So Jonah 117 through 210. This is the word of the Lord. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The water, the water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit to receive it. We thank you that in Jonah, though we see his rebellion and disobedience, we also see a glorious picture of your gospel prefigured for us. And I pray that you would teach our hearts again anew tonight this message of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week in Hamel, we began a series on the book of Jonah, the reluctant prophet. In brief summary, God had commanded Jonah, this prophet of Israel, the northern kingdom, to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city, was the capital city of the enemy Assyrian Empire, to prophesy against it. Well, instead of doing that, Jonah rebelled. Jonah ran away. He boarded a ship to Tarshish in the far west, in present-day Spain. But Jonah learned the hard way that there was no escaping from God. For God sent a devastating storm that threatened the ship and its crew, threatened to tear the ship apart. And through this, Jonah's sins found him out. The crew determined that it was Jonah's rebellion against God that caused this storm. 
And the only way to save themselves was to hurl Jonah into the sea. Now, God's purposes were at work even in this crew. Jonah modeled for the crew and for us the gospel. One man had to die so that others might live. And we see what appears to be conversion in those sailors. For after they threw Jonah overboard, the text tells us that they sacrificed to God and they paid vows. They became worshipers of Yahweh. But the question left unanswered by Jonah chapter 1 is, what happens next to Jonah? By all accounts, he should be dead. He's been thrown into the raging sea in a storm. But we learn in our passage tonight that the same God who is sovereign over the storms and the sea is sovereign over all of creation and is willing and able to preserve Jonah's life through such a calamity. And from the belly of a fish, Jonah will offer a prayer of thanksgiving and repentance that stands out as one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. Now, this doesn't mean that Jonah is just going to be all right from here on out. You can look later in chapter 4, for instance, and you'll see that Jonah still has some serious problems regarding what he thinks about Nineveh and God's work there. But for tonight, we will look at Jonah and his plight, his ordeal in the sea, and his prayer in four points. First, we'll look at Jonah's calamity. What happened to Jonah after he got thrown off the ship? We see this in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 1. And second, we will look at Jonah's cry to the Lord, which comes in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. Third, we will look at Jonah's comfort, the second part of verse 6 through verse 7. Sorry, that's verse 5 through verse 7. Fourth and finally, we will look at Jonah's confidence in the Lord, verses 8 through 10. So Jonah's calamity, his cry, his comfort, and his confidence. So first we look at Jonah's calamity in verses 117 and 2-1. Now the last time you would have looked at Jonah in the text prior to this, he was being thrown off the ship into a raging storming sea by the crew of that ship. Now, it wasn't like the crew just went to this by default. They had tried everything in their power to avoid this outcome. They tried to row the ship to safety after having already unloaded their cargo, which would have cost them a great deal financially and economically. But there was to be no other way. Jonah was to go into the sea, for it was God's will. We see that this is God's will in the opening of verse 17. The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the Hebrew word for prepared it would be more clearly translated, and your translation might say appointed. Just as God had planned for Jonah to flee and for this storm to come, so too he appointed this great fish. Now, much is made of the fish. Modern science almost universally denies the possibility of any such fish. They do not know of any current species or evidence of a past species that is both large enough to swallow a man whole and has the right internal conditions necessary for a person to survive in it for three days and three nights. 
And so they will say, this story is a myth. But to say that this story is a myth is to betray more about what man believes concerning God than what science can actually tell us. See, science is inadequate to speak to such a question. Science only deals in the natural and material and observable world. Science has no room for supernatural intervention. So what is really going on when scientists and those who follow them try to refute the supernatural, say something like, there's no way this story could be true because of what we know about science. They've really morphed from doing science, the study of the natural and material world, to scientism, a de facto religion where the natural and material world and the scientific belief concerning that becomes the arbiter of all things. They wouldn't say explicitly that science has become their god, or that scientists are the priests and prophets of a religion, but that is essentially what is going on. From a Christian perspective, a Christian worldview, we know that God created heaven and earth and all things in it from nothing in the span of six days and all very good. The natural world proceeds from supernatural acts of the triune God. Thus, God is transcendent of the natural world. He's more powerful than the natural world, and he is not subject to the rules and restrictions of the natural world. And we see here in this text supernatural intervention. God had prepared this fish through whatever means necessary, whatever he had to do, God had a fish in this place at this time that met all the criteria necessary to swallow Jonah and would do whatever was needed to keep Jonah alive inside. Now we next see that Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now, just because Jonah is miraculously kept alive inside the fish, this does not mean that he is in a pleasant situation. If you've ever dealt with the inside of a fish, you know that it's a bit messy. Last year, Heidi and I lived for a time up in Alaska. We had a roommate, someone who rented out the, ha- the basement of the house we were living in, and every day, because he loved to fish, he would bring us salmon. He loved to catch salmon. He didn't love to eat salmon. So he would bring home these whole salmon, and they were pretty big. They were usually 5 to 10 pounds, and he'd say, you can keep them if you clean them. So every couple of days, we would set up an assembly line, would take up the whole kitchen, We'd have to, like, cover everything and, like, newspapers and everything and clean these fish because they were big, they were smelly, they were slimy, they were full of eggs, and it was just this whole big production. And it smelled bad. It would smell bad even after we were done, cleaned everything up. That's what dealing with the insides of fish is like. The inside of a fish is not likely a pleasant place to be. Probably smelled pretty bad. Jonah was in there with whatever else the fish had been eating that was probably decomposing and being digested. These three days and three nights are significant. So much so that Jesus makes it explicitly clear that Jonah, who 
as I mentioned before in the previous chapter, was a type of Christ's suffering and death. The one man who had to die for the others is now a type of Christ's burial and resurrection. In fact, we see Jesus make this explicit in Matthew chapter 11, verses 38 through 40. It says there that some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now here people tend to get hung up on the three days and three nights, because by the traditional account, Jesus was crucified on Friday and raised on Sunday, which in the way we would normally measure time, that would be three days and two nights. So some will argue either that Jesus was wrong here, or some will go so far as to argue that Jesus was actually crucified on Thursday. Now the issue with this is that the Jews, they didn't talk about time in the way that modern Western people do. We can see another example in Scripture in Esther, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Esther said that she would fast for three days, day and night, but then on the third day she broke that fast to have a banquet with and for the king. Seems that this is something of a Hebrew practice of talking about time. When part of a day is in view, they refer to the day and the night. It's not necessarily all-inclusive. Even for Jonah, we don't know if Jonah was in the fish for exactly 72 hours. But imagine being inside a fish. Time gets a little fuzzy. But what is happening is Jonah in the fish is prefiguring Christ's death and burial. He is, for all intents and purposes, dead. His shipmates threw him overboard, convinced that they were sentencing him to death. They're not going to come back and look for him. He's inside a fish. He has no way to send a letter, send a message or anything to let anyone know that he's still alive. And yet... By God's power and providence, Jonah remains alive. So how does one spend three days inside a fish? Well, how would anyone spend three days inside a fish? Jonah prays. So what does Jonah pray? This brings us to our next point. After Jonah's calamity, we turn to our second point in verse 2 through 4, Jonah's cry. Now, thus far in this story, Jonah has not regarded God. He has been running from him. He has not sought God's will. He has disobeyed God's word. But now, having lost everything and being left with nowhere to turn, Jonah now turns back to his God. Now, how often are we like this? When life is good, when we are doing and getting what we want, it is easy to neglect God and not think of him. Or even worse, when we are disobeying God and we seem to be getting away with it, we start to think that we're okay. It can often take some great difficulty, some great calamity coming our way to turn us back. 
Our natural sinful inclination is not to turn to God until we have exhausted all other options, until we have used up all of our own strength and efforts and have nowhere else to turn. And that is where we find Jonah. In verse 2, he prays, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, it is fascinating to see that Jonah, who up to this point in the story has been so rebellious, here he prays with confidence that God has heard him. Now, Jonah acknowledges that he has experienced something akin to death and hell. He says he is crying from Sheol. That was in the Old Testament would refer to the place of the dead, sometimes generally, but often more specifically to describe the destination of the unrighteous. Now, Jonah recognizes that eternal separation and God's wrath are what he deserves for his rebellion. The situation he is in inside a fish is physically hellish, but he also recognizes the spiritual estrangement that previously existed. And yet he is confident that in returning to God, God will hear him. Jonah recognizes that God is merciful to him in preserving his life thus far from the sea, and more importantly, in forgiving his people when they sin against him. Now, not only does he acknowledge that God will hear him and have mercy on him, but in verse 3, he acknowledges that God has brought the calamity upon him. He says, For you cast me into the deep. And later, Your billows and your waves passed over me. He recognized that this is all according to God's plan and purpose. Though he was rebelling and attempting to hide from the face of God, God had a plan and a purpose to use this all for his glory. And so in verse 4, Jonah rather remarkably says, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Now Jonah, at least speaking in natural and temporal terms, has no reason to believe he's going to ultimately survive. But he is looking towards the temple. What does this mean? It's not a physical act. He's inside a fish somewhere in the ocean. He doesn't even know which way the temple would be. What he is doing is he is calling to mind God's covenant. The temple is representative of God's presence with his people and all the blessings of that covenant, as well as the people's worship of God. What Jonah is recalling in his hour of trial is that essentially, though in the Old Testament, by types and shadows, he is a Christian. He belongs to God's people. He has tasted of his grace. He is a member of his covenant. As John Calvin writes, relating Jonah's experience to ours, when every access to God seems closed up against us, nothing is more useful than to recall to mind that he has adopted us from our very infancy, that he has also testified his favor by many tokens, especially that he has called us by his gospel into a fellowship with his only begotten Son, who is life and salvation, 
And then that he has confirmed his favor both by baptism and the supper. When therefore these things come to our minds, we may be able by faith to break through all impediments. End quote. So just as Jonah had been circumcised, had participated in the sacrifices of the temple, as testimonies to him of God's covenant faithfulness, we are reminded by the sacraments of God's covenant faithfulness to us. Martin Luther, the great German reformer who often wrestled with serious depression and sorrow and doubt, was often known to take solace by proclaiming, I am baptized. When we face seasons of doubt, temptation, even God's own chastisement for sin, we can be reminded that we belong to his covenant people. We are adopted in Christ, that he hears us when we pray to turn back to him, and that none can snatch us out of his hand. In fact, Jonah himself is offering us a picture of baptism, passing through the waters of judgment, and yet by grace coming through alive. Just as Christ passed through death and is alive. This brings us to our next point, Jonah's comfort in verses 5 through 7. Now how bad did things get for Jonah before this remembrance of God's temple? In verses 5 and 6 we find out. The waters surrounded me even to my soul. Not only was Jonah drowning in the sea, but there was this despair of his soul. He knew that he was perishing in his rebellion against God. The physical sea is a picture of the death to which Jonah was to enter. And it is also a picture of the death that all apart from God are to enter. They're sinking in a sea of despair, sin, and death. There is nowhere to turn. We have the weeds wrapped around our heads. There is no escape. We can't get out. There is no coming back from this death. Jonah says, The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Basically, I was a dead man. There was no way back to life for me. This prayer, this psalm of Jonah, like many psalms do, reaches here the climax of despair and doom. This is as bad as it gets. There is this hopelessness, this despair, and this death, but God. As psalms also often do, because this is a psalm that Jonah has written, in this moment of darkest despair, God breaks in and transforms the situation. Yet you have brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Apart from God, there was only death and despair for Jonah. But because of God, there is life, there is hope. In verse 7, Jonah recalls God's works and expresses confidence that God has heard him. That his prayer has gone up to God in his heavenly temple, the place where God dwells and rules over all things. Though he is in the darkest and most dire of circumstances, largely because of his own sin, God still hears Jonah when he repents. 
This now brings us to our final point. After Jonah's calamity, his cry, and his comfort, we now see Jonah's confidence in verses 8 through 10. As Jonah has remembered God's faithfulness to those who would repent and believe in him, he now offers a polemic against false worship and worshipers. It says in the text I read, from those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Now the word here, often translated as idols, actually has a broader meaning than just idols. It's a word that describes anything vain or useless. It would almost be more accurate to render this text worthless worthlessness. It would include idols, but is certainly not limited to them. Jonah, for a time, had regarded worthless things. He wasn't worshiping false gods, but he had forsaken the true God for a time to pursue his own agenda in a foreign land. Jonah was essentially on his way to apostasy, trying to run from God's presence to a place from which he would not likely return. Jonah had for a time forsaken God's mercy. He basically said, God, I'm done with you. But God said, no, you're not. For the Lord, through the most powerful and direct of interventions, has intercepted Jonah and brought him back to the truth. Now in Jonah, we see something of hope for us. We live in a world where all around us, people face the pull and temptation of the world and away from Christianity. I know a lot of people that I grew up in church with, even served on missions with, worshiped together with, even that I went to seminary with, that have seemingly gone the way that Jonah tried to go, into worthless worthlessness and away from Christ. In this age of rampant apostasy and deconstruction and whatever they call it, perhaps you know people who have followed a similar path. In Jonah, we see that there is still hope. God will not lose any of his own. Even if he has to send a violent storm and a giant miraculous fish to get the job done. Continue to hope, continue to pray for such intervention. Because instead of hurtling onward towards apostasy, Jonah is now turned back to worship and obedience to God. In verse 9, he says, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Jonah will return to God. He will return to his temple and worship him as God commanded. Jonah has tried the ways and thoughts of the world, but he has found them to be what they are. They are worthless. And he comes to recognize the ultimate truth. Salvation is of the Lord. There is salvation to be found in no one else. And there is no other way to worship God than how he has prescribed. Many leave the church. Many leave Christianity because they think they'll find something better out there. They are dead wrong. Even if they find some Temporal relief or prosperity, it is Christ alone who has the words of life. 
Now with this, the scene is now set for the next part of Jonah's story. For in verse 10, the Lord speaks to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Note God's sovereignty and power continuing to work here. He was sovereign over the fish swallowing Jonah. He was sovereign over keeping Jonah alive in the fish. And now he directly instructs this fish to go deposit Jonah where he is supposed to be. Now this vomiting up, I, I do often wonder what that must have looked like. Part of me wishes that someone was having a nice calm day at the beach and saw this unfold because I'm sure it was quite a sight to see. You know, you're just walking along the shore and all of a sudden this giant fish pops up and spits up a whole and living man onto the shore. Not something you'd see every day. But what has happened, in essence, Jonah has passed through death and three days later has essentially been resurrected. Jonah prayed, salvation belongs to the Lord, but he himself acts as a type of the one by whom this salvation comes. For Christ suffered and died to pay the penalty of the sins of his people, just as Jonah had to be thrown off the ship to what appeared to be certain death to save its crew. Christ's body lay in the grave for three days, just as Jonah was in the fish for three days. And at the end of that three days, Jonah shows up on a beach, and Christ emerges from his tomb. Now this is not to say Jonah is a perfect type. We've seen his sin and his failure. There will be more struggle and failure where that comes from in the rest of this book. But in a certain and important sense, Jonah has illustrated important truths of the gospel of Christ, who is to come. Now that Christ that Jonah prefigured is the source and hope of our salvation today. The Lord who saved Jonah is the Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered the death of the cross and was raised three days later. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven by which man can be saved. And as even Jonah prayed, salvation belongs to the Lord. Perhaps you are a Christian here tonight, but you are feeling temptation to turn aside to man-made things, to the spirit of the age. Jonah is a warning. Salvation belongs to the Lord will be found nowhere else. Perhaps you are here tonight, and like Jonah, you've been on the run from God's will. I would hope and pray that it takes an ordeal far less great than Jonah's to cause you to see the folly in such a thing. But know with certainty that the God who was ready to receive Jonah's prayers and repentance stands ready to deliver you out of worthless worthlessness. Repent of your sins and return to Christ today. Now perhaps you're here tonight and you are grieved because you know someone, you love someone, you care about someone who seems to have gone the path that Jonah started out on, trying to flee from the presence of God. Let Jonah be a hope and encouragement to you. God is not done with people until he is done with them. 
Perhaps you are here tonight and you have never known Christ or the gospel that Jonah was a type of. Well, know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But also know that Christ died to save sinners. To any who would repent of their sins and believe in Christ, he offers eternal life and salvation. So tonight, may we all turn away from worthlessness and believe and love and serve Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this word that we heard. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel in which we have salvation. That just as Jonah spent three days in a fish, your son spent three days in death, three days in the tomb, and then emerged alive and victorious, having conquered sin and death forever. Pray that all here tonight would believe pray that any who have gone wayward, who are trying to run from your presence, would be brought back just as Jonah was brought back. pray that you would bless our time of fellowship and food this evening, and that you, we would glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name.